0: 198 years ago, a farmer sat in his barn. He had built a study area in the barn. He was a fairly avid reader and student and found that this barn was a good place for him. It wasn't the only thing he'd ever studied there. He had discovered deism in this same, same barn. He had studied and become a justice of the peace in this barn. But about 200 years ago, this guy who had been a Baptist and then became a deist, became a lieutenant in the military, and then a captain in the military during the War of 1812. Became a Baptist again, because he discovered one day while reading the sermon at the local church, he wasn't a member, he was out proclaimed deist and he was reading the sermon. While reading the sermon at the local church, he discovered that Jesus loved and cared for him. And he writes in his autobiographical comments, And I felt that I could run to the arms of one like that. His name is William Miller, famous most for the Millerite movement, named after him. Sam, there's a ghost following me around. And I don't even believe in ghosts. I'm going to hold this for a minute. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, I'll switch to the other one, Sam. William Miller, in 1818, after having been reading the Bible for several years, came to the conclusion that Jesus was coming in 1844. Actually, in 1843 is his original thinking. Now, he had about 25 years before you know, Jesus was going to come. He was under a great deal of conviction about this. Because what would you think if you had been reading the Scriptures and you were working your way through it and you decided, oh my goodness, I think Jesus is coming. Would you feel like you needed to tell your neighbors and your friends? Well, he decided that he would study it again before he made up his mind. So he studied it all through again and came to the same conclusion. Under the conviction of God, he then began to ask well, God, what should I do about this? And he felt really convicted that he needed to be telling the friends in his his Baptist church where he was a regular guest reader when the pastor was gone. And he told the Lord, I will speak on this subject if you will give me somebody to tell it to. And immediately there was someone at his door asking if he could once again take the pastor's place because the pastor was unable to be there that week. Miller took that as a sign from God, showed up at the church and told them what he had learned about the coming of Jesus, and that he thought in the next 25 years, Jesus was going to show up for real in front of them all. It didn't go quickly, but I want to just, as we, as we go uh, through this story a little bit today, I want to pause and remind you About where Miller was right. Because we talk about William Miller. At least in our congregation. Mostly when we talk about what he's gotten. What he'd gotten wrong. But can we start with the fact. That he was right about Jesus. That this was a person. To whom he could run. That these were welcoming arms. That would certainly be glad to have him when he showed up. Excuse me, I've got to try to fix this technical difficulty before it makes me crazy. This is the problem with being a little ADD, is all this kind of stuff gets to you. The good thing about being ADD is I get distracted usually before you do. So William Miller was right about Jesus. He was right about the character of Jesus. The person that Jesus, that he was coming to, was legitimate. He was the lover of mankind and the one who sacrificed himself completely for us. And he was one willing to accept him and still willing to accept us if we come running to him. So he was right about Jesus. So let's not think Miller was wrong about everything. He was totally right about Jesus. His deist friends had challenged him about the Bible. They said the Bible is not consistent You have to toss it aside as an irrevocable waste of time because it is not consistent. And he decided that deists believe that there's a God. They think that if you just look at nature and look at the things that are around you, you can obviously assume there's a God. But the, the, the scripture is not a real revelation from God. And so he decided to go through the scripture and prove to his deist friends that the Bible didn't contradict itself and that it could be trusted. And so he started systematically studying the Bible with the idea that he would only move on as fast as he understood what he was reading. Now, stop for a sec. Imagine if you committed yourself to that. How slowly would you be going through the scriptures? How carefully would you be reading? How much background research would you be doing? This man committed himself. This is, don't think of William Miller as some kind of illiterate farmer that stumbled onto some kind of revelation. This is a very bright man, recognized in his community. He was elected as a deputy sheriff. He was elected as a justice of the peace. He was a captain in the military, though. He only had 12 grades of education. He had 12 grades of education when it mattered. You know, when you graduated with a high school diploma back then, you had something in your hand. You had done something. You had accomplished something. To graduate from high school was a major accomplishment in in the 1800s. And so as he did just that, he did demonstrate a a, a great skill set. His family was military family. There were... Uh, there were there are records of him going from from neighbor to neighbor in his community, borrowing books from their libraries so that he could educate himself. This is not some dumb dirt farmer we're talking about. This is a fairly well-educated, committed student. And when he put himself to understanding the scriptures, he studied carefully and thoughtfully each passage as he worked his way through the Bible to try to understand them. He proved for himself that the Bible could be trusted. He proved to himself, though there's no record of his deist friends ever uh, buying his argument, he proved to himself that he could put his faith in the Bible, and he was right. He was right. And if you want to challenge that, that will really give you some time. If you want to know what to do for your devotional life for, oh, say, about five years, I challenge you to read the Bible only as fast as you can understand the passages that you're reading. Lay that out for yourself as a challenge and really go at it. You, you have many more resources than he has. You just open the Internet. You can start looking at all sorts of opinions on almost any passage in Scripture. But put yourself to the task of truly understanding it. And as I, I believe as you begin to let it, un, let it become unfolded to you, the depth and the power and the beauty of it. And the consistency from end to end, from cover to cover, from first word to last word, will begin to nail itself down in your mind. And you'll begin to see things as they've been sewn together by God, woven into a tapestry. He knew that he could put faith in the scriptures and he was right. As he studied, he came to believe that Jesus was coming in about 25 years, as I told you. And this is a quote from William Miller in his Apology and Defense, written in 1845. So we'll get back to why he's writing an apology at this point. I was thus brought to the solemn conclusion that in about 25 years from that time, 1818, all the affairs of our present world would be wound up. So I ask you again, what would you do if that was your conviction? How would you spend your time? What would you emphasize when you talk to people? How would you go about life if you thought in about 25 years from now, Jesus is coming? Now, if you're, if you're my age, you're thinking 25 years from now, I'll probably be on the layaway plan. But would I still want to use the time intervening to share what I thought I'd understood? William Miller starts to talk about this, and he begins to build in his thinking, and he begins to share more things. In September of 1822, how long has it been? Four years. September of 1822, Miller formally stated his conclusions in a 20-point document, including article number 15. I like that he wrote kind of like a, a law brief. He was a justice of peace. I believe that the second coming of Jesus Christ is near even at the door, even within 21 years, on or before 1843. Now, later I told you he'll he'll adjust that. Then he published in 1832, under under a Baptist in a Baptist uh, uh, magazine, a series of 16 articles. The Baptist newspaper, the Telegraph, published the first of these on May 15, and Miller writes on the public's. Response: I began to be flooded with letters of inquiry, inquiry, respecting my views, and visitors flocked to converse with me on the subject. It's 1832. How long do they have left? Eleven, twelve years. So people are starting to get a little interested as it gets within a decade. Now, if that were the case, if we thought it was a decade from now, if we really came to the conclusion that in, in 2026 Jesus was coming, how would it change what we're doing? What would we do? How would we go about our day? Would we talk to anybody differently? Would we do anything differently? Would we, would we order our lives at all differently? It's now about 11 years from his predicted time and he'll again begin to change it. Along comes a guy named Joshua V. Himes. Joshua V. Himes is a pastor, Chardon Street Chapel of Boston. But if you look down near the bottom of this note, he is also an experienced publisher. And though Himes did not fully accept Miller's ideas until 1842, kind of late to the ball game, don't you think? 1842, he finally accepts it. He established the Fortnightly. What's Fortnightly? Every two weeks. The Fortnightly paper, the Signs of the Times. Heard of that newspaper? Yeah, still around. New, different publishers, though. On February 28, 1840, to publicize Miller's thinking. Now, the estimates are between 50 on the very, very, very low end and 500,000 people follow Miller. So I've always just given it a couple hundred thousand as a nice middle-sized number. We can go, you can swing your guesses either direction. But imagine a couple hundred thousand people in 1840 following after what Miller's been teaching. This thing's starting to build some momentum, don't you think? People are starting to talk about this around their store, around the the gatherings at the general store, around their tables at night. Churches are starting to talk about this. Preachers are starting to preach for it and against it. People are being told not to, not to follow that crazy Farmer Miller. And people are being told, you know, it sounds like he might be right. And people are starting to gather some momentum about what they're thinking and where they're going. And they're beginning to think, hey, Jesus may be coming in just a few years. And as they start getting these papers in the mail, 1840, 1841, 1842. And then Joshua Himes actually says, OK, there's a year left. I'm in. I think that's interesting because that, that almost sounds like just buying some asbestos, Right. Just in case to me, but who knows, he, he, he may have fully and wholeheartedly been into into it, but he does in 1842 finally say, okay, I'm on, I'm on with this. I'm in. Okay. And then Miller has to explain himself to people. So what I want to get you to today is a little bit of Miller's story as it unfolds. But I want you to remember, this is a human being dealing with real stuff. One of the problems with historical figures is we kind of think of them like wax dummies. You know, they're just there. They're not really doing anything. They don't really mean anything. They're just there. They're like a picture in a book. That's all they are. This is a real guy with a real life who's now spent decades talking to people about the coming of Jesus. He's now in his 60s. And he's beginning to, to, to recognize that this, this, this door of time is closing. I want to share with you some of his arguments because they're right on the topics we've been talking about. We've been talking about Daniel 8. We're moving in through Daniel 8 to chapter 9. And I wanted you to see this from the perspective of this guy because the eventual date that was predicted for the coming of Jesus was October 22, 1844. Does anybody know what the date is today? It just seemed appropriate to tell you the story today. The eventual date that they came to was October 22, 1844, as the final, yes, Jesus is coming on that day. I'll share with you a little more of that as we work our way through it, but I want to work our way through a little bit of his arguments. Remember, he's going through the Bible, bit by bit, till he understands each portion of it. He comes to chapter 8 in Daniel, verse 14, and he reads what the angel said. He said to me, For 2,300 days... Evenings and mornings in the, uh, in the King James, or in the original language. Then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Miller, as he begins to go through all this sort of stuff, starts recognizing, as he's back in 1818 looking at this, starts believing that he can actually demonstrate from Scripture when Jesus is coming. He reads this passage, and he says, the cleansing of the sanctuary, that's got to be the second coming. Because the issue is about cleansing. And the second coming is about cleansing. We've got to clean this mess up. We're all in a huge mess. God's got to clean it up. It's got to be that. It's got to be that. So he he takes that conclusion. He starts working on this passage to try to understand it. Now remember, he only goes through the Bible as quickly as he can understand the passages he's reading. So he gets stuck here, start reading the context and reading the background and trying to understand this passage because this becomes a very significant, very important passage because he thinks it's pointing to when Jesus is coming. We read it last week. It was commonly believed then that the earth was the sanctuary in this passage and that the cleansing would be the cleansing of the earth. Now, people hadn't really come to a lot of understanding about it because there's no, there's no start date in Daniel 8. It just says, here we are, how long is this going to happen? And the, the, the one angel, the curious angel says, hey, how long is all this going to continue? And the other angel who has the answer says, oh, unto 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. And it, that's all it says, and then it moves on. No explanation about how and when it's going to start, no explanation beyond that point. So Miller stays on this passage, and he sticks with it and studies it, and it becomes an obsession with him to figure this thing out. And I want to take you a little bit through what he starts to discover. He figured it... Well, I'm sorry, I should have already hit the button. Therefore, if he could figure this prophecy out, he could know when Jesus would return. So this is one of the Millerites... This is actually just a corner of one of the Millerite charts... So they start charting all the prophecies of Scripture as he begins to work this out and begins to understand it. They start charting all the prophecies of Scripture. Now you may recognize, there's that image from Daniel chapter 2. See it there? On the left, that's the big one. And then you, you look down you see the, the various images from chapter 7 and then chapter 8. And you have the, that, that nondescript beast down there in the bottom and you can kind of just see over on the edge, there's a horn kind of all by itself. I cut the picture right there just to get those elements in because there's just... There's tons of stuff on here, lots of big dates, and none of the writing can be read. It's all so tiny, it's all handwritten, it's impossible for us to read it in this, at this level. But Daniel 2's image is there, right? We talked about Daniel 2. What did we say Daniel 2 was about? It's about the second coming. It's not about all those other things. All those world powers are simply telling you one thing. God knows what's coming. God has everything under control. You may be captive in Babylon today, Daniel, but God has Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome all within his control. And in the end, he's going to win. That's what this is really about. If you remember the big image that everybody's so impressed with gets hit by a rock ground into powder, blown away by the wind. It's clearly not about that, because that's gone by the end of the story. Chapter 2 is about the, the coming of Jesus. Chapter 2 is about the kingdom of God coming and reigning. Then he sees Daniel 7's images. Remember we talked about these? All these wild images that Daniel sees in chapter 7. The, the, the lion with the wings, the leopard with the wings, the bear with the ribs in his mouth, and that nondescript dragon-looking thing out in the back corner there. He sees all of these things coming up, and he's told by God. These are the kingdoms that are to come, and he's given the descriptions of each one of them. And as we start tracing them, we see they line right up with chapter 2. In chapter 8, he gives them a quick rundown, and then we see this creepy little horn guy getting a lot of attention. He pops up in chapter 7. In chapter 8, he gets a lot of attention. Because that seems to be what's concerning Daniel in the book. So our guy Miller is following all of this along. It's pretty clear by the time he reads chapter 8 what's happening. Gabriel is in fact told to tell Daniel to understand the vision. And so he tells him the vision refers to the time of the end. He tells him at that appointed time, the end shall come. I like this phrase. It says God knows when the end is happening. And when when that time comes, it'll happen. You know what I like about this phrase? It takes you and I off the hook to try to predict the date. Don't you think? Because a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to figure this out. And you know what it says? It says, God knows when it's going to happen, and when that day comes, it'll happen. Okay. Time to put the the feet up on your lazy boy and say, okay, God's got this covered. That is all he's been saying in 2 and 7 and 8 up to this point, by the way. Over and over again, he's been saying, I understand what's going on in the world sounds crazy to you. I understand what's going on in the world sounds really wild to you. Does it relate to your world right now? Now, it may just be because of the media. We had had a conversation with someone this week and said, actually, we're at greater peace in the world right now than we have been in a long, long, long time. But man, every time I hear the the news, I have never, I've, I've been in alive now for 55 years. I've voted a few times. I've never been left with the kind of crazy decision I have now. You know what I mean? Surely you know what I mean. If you've been awake for the last few months, if you're not, rip them, Winkle, thank you, and good morning. Don't vote. No, I'm saying rip, if Rip just woke up. The point, though, is that we have been left with some very interesting challenges and things in front of us right now, and it's it's tempting to think the world is out of control, right? It's tempting to think things are just going to the hot place in the handbasket. See, I caught that. It's tempting to think that things are going really bad and they're not going to get better. They might not. You know, this may be the last of America. This could be it. Whichever one of these people take the the throne, they might just ruin everything and blow everything up and that'll be it for America. Does that mean God has left his throne? Was God on his throne before there was an America? Will God be on his throne when there is no longer an America, if, if that so happens? Absolutely. So, can we just recognize that the text said, God knows when the end is, and when that day comes, it'll happen. Period. Not up to you, not up to me up to God, a God you can trust, a God who loves you, a God who is working things out in the very best, greatest, most amazing skill set. He's the God of the universe to be a blessing and a benefit to the world. Number three, he's told the Rams, the king of Media and the media in Persia, he's told the male goat, these are, by the way, the images that he's looking at, chapter 8, He's told the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. Number five, the four kingdom, then four kingdoms will come out of Greece. So is he, is, is, is he getting an explanation for everything that's in the text? If you're Miller and you're only going through the text, now stop, Think for, put yourself in Miller's barn with Miller, sitting there looking at his desk, dust all around, hay floating in. Good thing he doesn't have hay fever apparently. And he, he's trying to look in the morning sun as it comes through the window at, the, at his Bible and he's reading through and he's reading chapter 8 and he's saying, hey, what's in chapter 8? Not to know pretty much everything's there it refers to the time of the end it's going to happen when god says it's going to happen the ram is meat of persia male male goat is greece four kings will come out of greece what's left not to know? what's left to know the last part is this little horn that's going to be this really fierce king everything is explained up to this point this is a known clear prophecy in scripture it explains itself within the text so if miller's cruising through this this passage he's going yeah this is easy yeah this is not a problem i got this Because it's clear, it's clear, it's clear, it's clear, it's clear until you get to that little verse in chapter 14 where the curious angel asks, hey, how long is this thing going to happen? And the the angel who has the answer says, hey, 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. And Miller got stuck there, and he got stuck there for a long time because he was trying to sort out what the Bible was saying. Daniel faints at the end of this chapter. We talked about this like March, February, March. What's he freaked out about? He's been told everything that Miller just was told. Why is he all upset? He faints, he's sick for days," the Bible says. Well, there's only one possible reason, because of this fierce king represented by the little horn, who's attacking the people of God. He's attacking the promise then, he's causing desolation that would last to 2,300 days, or 2,300 years, and until the time of the end. Daniel sees the opposer of the kingdom of God and the very very God himself staying in existence and and opposing and pressuring against God all the way through history and it makes him sick. It makes him sick because of some of the pieces that are being tied together. It makes him sick because of what's being said about why this little horn has such power. It makes him sick because he feels like he's to blame. You got that? It makes him sick because he feels like he's to blame. Like his people are to blame. Like Israel is to blame. And it breaks his heart. Let me get back to William Miller. Brother Miller, Pastor Miller, Mr. Miller, was right to stop and look at this passage. He's right to recognize this is the only thing unclear in this passage. He's right to hang out with this one till he thinks he can sort it out. Miller is right, once again, in his motives and even his methodology. He's right. He's doing the right thing. Study each text until he understood its meaning. So he concluded... That the secret to understanding Daniel 8 was actually Daniel 9. And I'll show you why, just briefly. In Daniel 8 and chapter 9, Daniel 8, Daniel's worried about the time prophecy in chapter 8 as it's wrapping up this 2300 unexplained days, and refers to a time prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, in verse 1 of chapter 9. He immediately says, I, I didn't understand the time, and then I'm looking at this time prophecy. He's focusing in on this time issue. The prophecy is in, in, Je- in Jeremiah 29 is there, when 70 years are completed, I will bring you back to this land. So what's he worried about? Not going back to the land. Daniel has no concern about you and I. He can't imagine you and I. We're so far down in history, it would be like you imagining somebody 2,000 years from now. you going to be able to pull that off? He can't imagine you and I. So a prophecy that might relate to our time or anywhere close to our time isn't anything that he can handle. It's not. It's beyond him. But what he is recognizing is that he is in captivity. Israel, the land is desolate. The temple is desolate. The land has been destroyed. He's stuck, and he's just saw, saw just seen a really long long man. He's just seen a really long time prophecy. Let's try this. And so he's freaked out by that. And he says, look, God, I looked in Jeremiah, your prophet, by the way, and I found you ever talk to God this way. I found that we were going to get out of this jail in 70 years. 70 years are almost up. And now I just you just told me that this thing might get longer. That's crazy, God. I'm not in for that. I don't want to do that. Nope, 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 no. That's how he starts chapter nine. Daniel 8, 14 says refers to desolation. Daniel's prayer Desolation. Get chapter 9 out if you have your Bible with you. Daniel, just check me. Daniel knows that Jerusalem has been destroyed. Daniel prays for God to bless and restore Jerusalem. Comparing it again, no one understood. Verse 27, Daniel understood in verse 2. Because the transgressions, the little horn would prevail. Daniel's praying in verse 11 of chapter 9 about Israel's transgressions. By the way, that's why he thinks they're to blame. Transgression, that's why this little horn power has all this power for all this time. How long de- will desolation happen? Verse 13, sanctuary will remain desolate. is remaining desolate in verse 17 of chapter 9. Then chapter 9, verse 19, there's a lot more to compare, but we don't have time to do it all. Chapter 9, verse 19 hits it right on the head. Do not delay. He is afraid in chapter 9 that the message in chapter 8 is going to mean God is delaying the conclusion of the 70 years. Of Jeremiah. And they're going to be stuck there. Are you following this? Are you, I, can you imagine now sitting in your barn? The morning sun is shining through. It's beautiful. Hey, Mike. Hey. Fancy meeting you here. <laughs> if you're sitting there, the morning sun is shining on your Bible. Because just remember, you, you don't want to have to burn any extra candles or things. Morning sun is shining in on your Bible. You're reading along. And you're, you're coming to these passages and you're going back and forth between 8 and 9 and you're seeing transgression and desolation and transgression and desolation. And you're seeing this this time period and this time period. And you begin to pray. If you read the beginning of chapter 9, it's all a prayer. It's all a prayer. It's Daniel saying, oh God, don't let this terrible thing happen. Don't let this happen. And as he prays this thing through with God, he's he's praying and asking God to intervene to not let Israel get stuck in Babylon any longer than they already have been. He's already on, by the way, his second kingdom, right? Babylon has passed. He's now in the king, under the control of the Medes and the Persians. He doesn't know for sure if God hasn't shown him all this because he's going to be stuck there. Imagine that God is unfolding that to Daniel. Now imagine now that this old farmer's unfolding that in his scriptures. as he's working his way through it. He's figuring this thing out applying what he knows from Scripture to this Scripture, looking first in the context, looking up the words, trying to understand it through the concordance, trying to sort out what it means, he puts these two together. I show you this chart. This is one of William Miller's charts. And I want to show it to you because I want you to see how careful he was. So on the top, you have the dates as we would understand them. Okay? So think of that in, in, in terms of modern, ca- modern calendar. The green line is the Persian calendar, the way the Persians were reckoning time with their kings. As they're talking about, remember, it's in the the first year of this king and the fifth year of that king. And as he's counting those out, he's trying to line those up with modern calendars. And then the bottom line is Jewish reckoning of the same time frame. Here's what I want you to see in this. All I want you to see is how careful this man is. This is not a winging it sort of a guy. This is a guy who's carefully thought all this stuff out. And he's sorting it out so carefully that he's laying these things out in parallel to get his dates right. Because what he's looking for is how do I start? Where do I start? Because once you have a start date for a time prophecy, you can count it down to your end date. Not that hard. It's just math at that point. Easy math. Not even algebra. Third graders do this. He sorts it out and comes to the conclusion down there on the purple line that in, in fact, in the book of Daniel, in chapter 9, the phrase that says that the, when, the, when the decree goes forward to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, and it gets descriptive in that decree, as it describes what's going to happen with this final decree, he says this one only lines up in one place, and that it lines up in fact with the third decree, the decree that sends finally Ezra to restore and restore the walls. Around Israel. As written Nehemiah, I should say. He then reads in chapter 9 70 weeks are determined for your people. What's Daniel's big concern? Does he think about you? No, he can't imagine you. So, what's his big concern? His own people. He's worried about Israel. He's worried about his own congregation, his own people. And so as he's talking about them, as he's worrying about them, he sees in this prophecy, hey, God is talking to us about this shorter period. Seventy weeks are determined for your people. He starts counting off the 457, starts counting the 70 weeks, giving a year for a day. He works his way down, and he finds out this is a predictor of the coming of the Messiah. This is one of the clearest biblical prophecies in the Bible. It talks about the coming of the Messiah, the Prince. And he walks it down, and he sees it's being cut off in the midst of the last week. And he looks at this thing, and he says, yeah, I'm in the right place, because 457 and these 70 weeks makes perfectly good sense. Here's the Messiah. It all adds up. And he starts to do the math. Now, can you imagine his heart beating a little bit faster? Master. Have you ever discovered something like this? I remember when I was a freshman in, high, in college. I was in freshman physics. Now they don't put preachers in regular physics. We don't have the math skills. I was in physics. That was it. Was great. It was theoretical and experimental physics only. No math. You know who did the math in our class? The professor. It was awesome, and all those of you who went to regular physics, nee nee nee, I got a grade anyway. It's on my, it's on my transcript. I passed, but I can remember sitting in my dorm room. They were, this is where the math problems, this is where math would really help. I, was, I remember sitting in my dorm room, and we had talked about nuclear fusion and fission and that kind of stuff in class. And I was reading through the physics book, and I was looking at fission and fusion. And as I'm looking at these things, I, I was, I suddenly realized. From the, the statements that were being made, and from the little bit of calculation that I could understand that nuclear fission was a real possibility, and that fusion was a possibility. And I remember looking at that thinking, just for a minute, because I just did realize quickly I was reading a textbook, but just for a minute thinking, "What have I discovered here?" And then, you know, God said it is a textbook. It's a textbook. It's a textbook. But I just remember that thrill of discovery. You know, you know when you when you come across something, you figure, you you finally figured it out. You got all of the all the ducks finally got lined up, and they not only got lined up, they they pointed somewhere. They made sense. That's what happens with Miller. Don't let this be an isolated bit of math tricks. Don't then let this be a guy who's just a prophetic geek. He's actually waiting for Jesus to come, excited to meet Jesus, and he thinks he's just figured out when he's coming, and it's going to be very shortly. Can you imagine the excitement you might have? Please understand that's what's going on here. We have a problem with this. We think prophecy is all about math tricks. It's not. Prophecy is all about Jesus. That's what the text has always been about. That's what all these prophecies have been about so far. They keep saying, God's got it, God's got it, God's got it, and He's going to end it. God's got it, God's got it, God's got it, and He's going to end it. He knows the end from the beginning. He's got this in His under, in, He's got this thing under control. Unlike my tongue. And in, in so doing, God is handing to, to Miller that day as Miller sees it. An, an enlightenment to his heart. A joy that he's never expected to see in his lifetime. He realizes as he's looking at this passage, I've just figured out when Jesus is coming. Remember the one whose arms he felt he could run to and rest in? That Jesus... You see, the, 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 the grand story of the Millerite movement is not math. It's not math. It's Jesus. The grand expectation of these people on October 22, 1844 was not a math solution. It was the coming of Christ. And if you think it's about math, you think it's about little movements here and there, you miss the whole story. It's about Jesus. They were expecting the coming of Jesus. And so when Miller figures out that this, this word determined, 70 weeks are determined for your people, in chapter 9, sits in at the beginning of the 2300 days and finds a starting point he gets excited because he realizes or he thinks he understands. He's come to conclude at least that Jesus is coming. And that Jesus is coming so soon that he'll see it in his own lifetime. One of of the things I don't like about modern prophetic preachers, one of the things that really bothers me about the way preachers go about this today is we spend... Our time telling you about all the bad stuff that's going to happen so that we'll scare you into getting ready for Jesus to come. We tell you all the bad stuff that's going to happen so we can scare you into the best thing that will ever happen. How about if we just talk about the best thing that will ever happen and say, oh, you know all the scary stuff? God's got that covered too. He doesn't abdicate His throne because scary stuff is going on. Jesus doesn't quit because you're scared. You know, He's not even scared of the stuff you're scared of. Amazing, isn't it? God does not run crying in a room like a third grade girl. He goes, oh, I got it. I understand it. This is not a problem for me. That's what he was telling Daniel when he said, look, there will be kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. I know it. I got it. But when it's all said and done, I will have my own kingdom and it will be an eternal kingdom. It will last forever. On October 22, 1844, they were waiting for Jesus to come. Please don't forget that. Because if you forget that, you forget why this church exists. Miller was right about the start date. He nails this 457 B.C. thing. He's right about the end date because it's just math at that point. What's Miller wrong about? Well, remember that early discussion about what was going to be cleansed, that early assumption that the cleansing of the sanctuary meant the cleansing of the earth. That was his mistake. A guy named Wendell helped us build this building. Wendell has since passed. Tremendous guy. He told me a story about building... The hospital, some of you know about it, up, up in St. Helena. that sits up on the hillside there. He was building a big addition on that hospital. He was the general contractor. I told this story to a few of you, I think. He said they were laying out the foundations for this thing. As they're laying out all the foundations, measuring everything out, you know, you're going to pour this massive, massive cement foundation. You've got to get it right, and it's got to be right the first time. And so they measured and they cross-measured and they checked everything. In the middle of this process of laying out the foundation, a representative from uh, Stanley Tools came to their, to their job site. And they had this, these new tools and this, uh, this salesman is trying to sell tools to these, contra- or to these uh, carpenters and, and workers. The company allowed him to give them all free brand spanking new tape measures. And so a whole bunch of these guys took the new tape measures and, you know, they kept working, gone about their business. Nobody thought about this guy weeks later when they came to to actually pour the cement. And they got the cement poured, and as soon as the cement hardened up, got settled in, they started measuring it to make sure everything was still right, that something hadn't tipped or fallen out. If you're going to change that, if you're going to fix this cement, if you're going to cut something... You catch it while it's green, not after it's real hard. And they found out that their foundation, instead of being square, went like this. That it was off. And it was off not by a quarter of an inch in the hundred feet. It was off by several inches by the time you got to the far corner. And they couldn't figure it out. They had measured and they had checked and they had measured and they had checked and everything was perfect. Then he finally, after... Some great angst and turmoil, and surely some acid burning holes in his stomach. He called one of the carpenters who had gotten the new, freshly minted Stanley tape measures over. And he laid out the Stanley tape measure, and he laid out his tape measure, and the new tape measures were off. And so a whole bunch of his carpenters and a whole bunch of the people working on this project had tape measures that were off. And so what would start as just a small percentage on the front end, by the time they got to the other end, they were way out of whack. You see, that small idea, the thing that needed to be cleansed was the earth. It didn't seem like that big of a deal. It seemed like a pretty obvious thing. But it was so integral to their idea that by the time they got to the conclusions that it would bring you, you were completely wrong. That initial phase is so important to get things sorted out right, they missed something in the initial phase. You get the math right all day long, but if you have a wrong conclusion, wrong estimate of where you're headed, you end up off. It was way off. Hiram Edson, one of the people who was there that day, describes his feelings on October 22, 1844. So we looked for the coming Lord until the clock told 12 midnight. Can you please remember the first sentence? What did they look for? The coming Lord. They were looking for Jesus. They were waiting for Jesus. Our hopes and expectations were blasted. And such a spirit of weeping came over us as I have never experienced before. We wept and wept till the day dawned. It's October 22. What time was dawn today? Anybody notice when the sun started to come up? Right in that 6:30 frame framework. Clock strikes, strikes midnight, and Jesus hasn't come. And they begin to cry. These are New Englanders, by the way. I don't know what you know about New Englanders. Not a lot of weeping in New England. It's against the law. (laughs) And they cried for six hours. Such a spirit of weeping came over us as I have never experienced before. And cried for six hours until dawn. Because the math was wrong. because they were expecting Jesus and he didn't show up. You know what they came to call this day? The day day of the great disappointment. We have had lots of discussions about this that have had nothing to do with Jesus. And when we leave Jesus out of this discussion, we completely miss the point. This is not math. This is about the coming of Jesus. They were heartbroken. Miller was heartbroken. They had set a date in 1843. They began to research and recheck calendars and dates. They went to an obscure Jewish group known as the Kararites to figure out the calendar because the Kararites were more careful than any other Jewish sect at keeping the calendar absolutely perfectly accurate. And when they did the the math by the Kararite calendar, that's when they came up with October 22, 1844 as the Day of Atonement, as they saw this cleansing of the sanctuary lining up with the days that were in the sanctuary system itself. And they saw this cleansing day as Day of Atonement, October 22, 1844. That would be the day when Jesus would come and finally do the cleansing that needed to be done. Finally take away the sin that needed to be taken away. Finally get this place cleaned up and restarted. And he didn't come. And they were heartbroken. Because of one simple mistake. The sanctuary isn't the earth. Somehow they had missed Hebrews because the book just keeps saying there's a sanctuary in heaven, there's a sanctuary in heaven, there's a sanctuary in heaven. Or they had just assumed that it didn't really matter because the sanctuary in heaven didn't need to be cleaned up. And they were heartbroken. Probably a heartbreak like few of us have experienced in our entire lives. So I want to conclude with this couple of things. What are our risks? One, our assumption that we know something. The assumption that you know something can very often lead you to destruction. can lead you off in a path of utter futility. Assuming that you know where you are in a big city where you're actually lost, just gets you more lost, right? Ever, ever done this? Assuming that you know where you are out in the woods can get you dead. Assuming that you know where you are out in the middle of the ocean, well, it's correctable because there aren't a lot of things to run into, but you better have get get it corrected before too long. It's Assuming that we know something. That's what thats what Miller's problem was. He assumed he knew something that wasn't biblical. He assumed he already understood something that wasn't clear in Scripture. And because everybody else believed it was true, he went with it. Second, forgetting that the cleanse cleansing of the sanctuary is the symbolic end of sin. I became a college student in the fall of 1979. In the spring or the the summer of 1979, one of the professors at, at my college, at Pacific Union College, dropped a bomb about this date in the midst of everything there on the college campus. And the, the bomb was just a question about what actually took place in 1844 or whether it was a legitimate date and all that sort of stuff. And literally, for the next four years there and the next three years at seminary, we talked about this over and over and over and over again, and as I think I told the class last week, until I was just done. Done hearing about it. Every professor was talking about it because every professor was wondering about it and trying to understand it and trying to sort it out. Nobody happened to mention that the purpose of this cleansing was to demonstrate that one day God would allow the wages of sin to actually take place. And that when that scapegoat was taken out in the wilderness, he wasn't killed because he was just allowed to die of the natural consequences of sin and that one day the mercy that that God has been showing over the world that has been keeping us from being consumed according to Jeremiah that has been protecting us all this time that that veil of protection would be separated, would be moved and God would move into our very presence and when he moved into the presence of those who were grasping their sins they would be destroyed, period, simple not wrath, not vitriol not anger not anger Just the wages of sin. Just the consequences of our decisions finally actually meeting their end. If we forget that that's what this is really about, then we get all excited and cranked up and angry sometimes about movements and stuff. Because we forget that it's about God and His business and we don't really have that good a grasp of His business. And then lastly, I think that it is it is pathetically incredible that we are still trying to do math we are spending the great efforts of bright people trying to figure out a math problem and predict the coming of Christ scripture says we're never going to know but that instead we would recognize that the Bible has a very clear end Jesus comes That's the end of the story. All the mess and all the trouble and all the struggles and all the things are over. Trumpet sounds. Skies part. Dead in Christ are raised up. Those who are alive and remain are caught up together with them in the air. And they go to meet the Lord in the air. And there they shall ever be with the Lord. That's the end. That's the way the story ends. Very clear in Scripture. There's no question. There's no numbers to figure out. There's no addition and subtraction. Is this true and is that true? Business. It's straight up and straightforward. And if we can keep the heart of the message, the heart of the message will be okay. This church came out of that mistake. Not this congregation, but the lineage of this congregation. Of 50 to 100 people, depending on who's Matthew do, came out of the Millerite movement. Having made such an incredible mistake that it would scar them for the rest of their life. You know what the first thing God revealed to them was? person among their, their number, a young girl, 17 year old, like a junior in high school age girl, has a vision. What does she see? She sees some of her friends, people she knows. All these folks she's known from the Millerite movement who have been waiting for Jesus to come all this time. She sees them walking up this path. The path is getting narrower and narrower as it gets higher and higher. At the front of the path is Jesus. She notes that some people are falling off the path as it narrows. As she watches this group, she notices a difference between those who stay on the path and those who fall off the path. It's a simple thing. Those who keep Their eyes on Jesus follow him all the way home. Those who take their eyes off Jesus get themselves busy worrying about politics, worrying about math, worrying about even events around them so much that they forget that Jesus is still God and God's still on his throne. Those who miss that miss everything. Because it's the only thing in the end that really matters. The first thing God says to this this tiny little group of people whose hearts are broken is keep your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, the mess of this world Drags us in so many directions. We get confused because there are some fearful things described in Scripture, and we forget that perfect love casts out fear. We forget that you're the answer to our worries, and you're the answer to our questions. And that no, no trauma comes on the earth that you can't handle, that you are surprised by. It. Lord, we look forward to the day when we'll meet William Miller, other famous and faithful people. And we'll sit around the table and realize all the ways we were wrong and be happy we got one thing, Help us to keep that one thing right. In Jesus' name.